a copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter uh, 1. If, um, if you look on your outline, you'll find the page numbers in the Pew Bibles if, if you need that. Uh, we're continuing our, our sermon series on Philippians. I want to remind you of the Philippians challenge that we announced several weeks ago. Uh, I want to challenge you to read through the book of Philippians uh, out loud once a week. Uh, in one sitting, it'll take you only about 10 minutes, and so it's not a, a great amount of time. But I think you'll find that if you do it at least once a week, uh, the book of Philippians will just kind of start oozing into your soul, and it'll start coming out in ways in your thoughts uh, that you may not anticipate. So I would encourage you and challenge you to, to join me and others as we do that. Um, as you turn there, let me remind you that we believe that the Bible is, uh, is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule or standard of what we believe and what we do. This is not man's thoughts about God. Indeed, this is God's revelation to us. All right. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God, it shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Father, like crops need rain, we need your word. Lord, we are in desperate need of growth and grace. And knowing, Father, we've come to the right place, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that as your spirit moves to the preacher, that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we might grow closer and closer to you and and know your love more and more. And that we might be enabled to love others and love you with an overflowing, abounding love and to strive to live a life of holiness. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, very often when we pray for one another, we pray generically. We pray, Lord, I pray for so-and-so. Um, and we just, we, we go on from there. But I think scripturally, biblically, when we find prayers recorded for people, they're more than just generic prayers of, Lord, I pray for so-and-so. They have content. Lord, I pray for so-and-so in the following ways. By the way, I would encourage you as you pray for your families, pray for your spouses, pray for this church, pray for leadership, for whomever you pray, that you would indeed try to be more specific in your prayers, because that's the example we have here in Paul. In Philippians uh, 1 verse 3-ish, verse 3, he begins this, what's called a thanksgiving and prayer report. 
Paul does, and he, he loves the Philippians, and he gets carried away in his love for them. And he begins by telling them, hey, I've been praying for you. In fact, I pray for you all the time. And whenever I do pray for you, it brings great joy to me to remember you and to bring these petitions before you. Now, he gets a little sidetracked in, his, in this paragraph, talking about how much he loves them over and over again. And then finally, we get to verse 9, and we see the content of his prayer for the Philippians. You'll remember that the Philippian church was a mature church. It was a, a spiritually a very healthy church. Uh, we think of like the Corinthians. They loved the Lord, but they had a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. The Philippian church is, seems to be a, a much more peaceful church, but there were problems there as well, just like any church. We are a bunch of sinners, and when sinners come together, then, well, sin happens. Uh, and this is what had happened in the Philippian church as well. Specifically in the Philippian church, two, one big thing was, uh, was a matter of division within the church that it seemed to have coalesced around these two ladies, Eodia and Syntyche, we find in chapter 4. And so when Paul says, I've been praying for you, he prays for two things in specific. He prays that their love would abound more and more and that they would live pure and blameless, holy lives. This is where the rubber met the road for them. As they struggled to live uh, a life of love for God and for each other, as they experienced division within their church, and also knowing how to respond and act in a holy manner towards each other. So Paul doesn't gloss over the problems he sees in the Philippian church, even though he says he loves them greatly. You have, no, you have no idea how much I love you, but I am praying for these two things. I think that these are two elements that, that any and all of us need as well. To know how to love the Lord and love others more. That we would grow in our love. That it would abound, it would overflow more and more and that we would indeed desire to and be enabled to live holy lives. So this is Paul's prayer. He can pray to a lot of things. He could have told him he was going to pray about a lot of things. But these are the two things he draws out that he's praying for. And I think they're worthy of our attention and we ought to desire to, uh, to grow in the same areas. The first is that Paul desires for them uh, to grow in their love, verse 9 through 10a. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. You know, it's interesting because in the original language here, it says yet, it says again, meaning that they have loved, that their love is overflowing, and yet he prays that their love would yet overflow even more. When you think of a glass that is overflowing with water, you've stopped paying. Have you ever been in a restaurant when the waitress or waiter gets distracted and the next thing you know, there's sweet tea everywhere? That's the picture here. That the love that we have is an overflowing, abounding love that continues to grow. It is not a stingy love. It is not a stingy love. You know, stingy love would keep record of past offenses where an overflowing love would be ready to forgive 70 times seven at the drop of a hat. A stingy love would be self-centered where a overflowing love would be one that focuses on the needs of others. Have you ever seen an infinity pool? 
Do you know what I mean by that when I say that an infinity pool? Most pools have four normal edges, sides. You know, the water goes up to about six inches or so from the top of the pool and it's contained. But an infinity pool usually has three sides that are normal. And then on one side, the the edge is lower and, and the water is constantly overflowing, is constantly going over the edge Uh, into a collection pool, which is then pumped up back into the upper pool, making a waterfall. And it is an infinity. I mean, it continues on and on and on as long as that pump is going. I I don't know what happens when the pump stops. Does the whole pool drain out? As long as the pump is going, the water is going to continue to flow over. And that's the picture here. That as long as God's love is flowing into our lives, our lives will be overflowing in love for him and for others. It is like the picture we have in Psalm 23 of our cup runneth over. It is a picture of a gracious and and, um, wealthy uh, table host. When he goes to fill the the goblet of wine, he, he goes and he fills it and fills it and fills it and fills it. We have so much, it is overflowing. But somebody asks you this question, is can you describe your love as overflowing? I don't think I like the answer about myself. Perhaps towards some. But I find that I am convicted all the more of the sparse nature of my love. The stingy nature of my love. So Paul is praying for this, for the Philippians. Their love wouldn't be a love that just focuses on self. It wouldn't be a self-love. In fact, in Philippians 2, he's going to pick up this theme again and again later in chapter 4 that we wouldn't focus just on our own needs. We wouldn't be so consumed with what's going on in our world that we would be unable, unable to focus on the needs of others. The, the Philippians and, and we ourselves fight hearts that aren't completely soft they've been made new they've been made soft by the lord by the holy spirit and regeneration but we still fight little corners of our heart that are still hard don't we a prideful heart that sees others as unworthy of our care a critical spirit that only sees the faults in others, a perfectionist attitude that makes others feel incompetent, a loose tongue that derides others in public and private instead of building them up, an unforgiving memory that fails to let things go but instead keeps record for years. Don't you know that one of the greatest tools for evangelism is love? If when we share the gospel... And we tell others of the overflowing love of God for us. And yet we who seemingly have been transformed by this love, we just hate everybody? That's not a love that will go very far. See, the object of this love, Paul isn't clear on it. If you look at this, it says, we just want his prayers that your love will abound all the more, more and more and more and more. True love in our hearts has two objects. It has the object of God and man. 
In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 John 4.20 that if we don't love man, we don't have love for God. You can't divorce these two things. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's strong language. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Does our love overflow? Does it abound? That's a hard question. Well, this love, he desires to have two ingredients. The first is knowledge. Now, there there are two types of knowledge. There's a, uh, I know that two plus two equals four. But I would never use to know in the same way that I would say, I know you. I would never say, oh, I know so-and-so in the same way that I would say, oh, I know two plus two equals four. When we say we know somebody, we know them intimately. We know them personally. We are known by them. It's not just an acquaintance to know. And so the know that is used here is a knowledge that is not just based in head knowledge, but is based in relationship. And here's the thing, that we will only love others if we have first experienced the love and forgiveness and intimacy that we have in Christ Jesus. If you ever see someone who does not love, it's a pretty good clue that something is going on spiritually. That this person does not know the manner to which they need God's love, the depth, the degree of their own sin, and therefore they have not marveled at how much God has loved them in spite of who they are. Let's not use they, let's use me. When I don't love, then I'm most likely going through a season in which I do not see my sin and the great magnitude with which God has loved me. He doesn't, he doesn't love me and leave me where I am. He calls me to repentance. He calls me to holiness and he loves me through it. And he's loved me from before the foundation of the world and called me to be his own. This knowledge then of God's love for us is what fuels our love for others. And only the degree to which we understand God's love for us will be able to love others. We see this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Do you remember what happened when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai? He came away changed. He came away with a glowing face. In fact, he had to put a veil on himself because it disturbed the rest of the Israelites. He came away changed from his experience with the Lord. And so it is when we who experience the love of Christ and we come away from his word and prayer having marveled that that as far as the heavens are from the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. That when we have experienced his love, our countenance has changed towards others. So that when others sin against us, we say, you know what? I forgive you. Because God has forgiven me 10,000 talents worth of sin. And therefore, I can forgive you. So it is a love that is based on a knowledge of the love of the Lord. But it is also not a naive love. It is a love that is based upon discernment. We see this in our passage with, all, with knowledge and with all discernment. Um, it's fashionable to have a reckless love that pays no attention to the object. But I don't think it's biblical. 
Let me explain what I mean by that. Knowing how to love is often not as important. Let me back up. It is often hard to know how to love people well. As you think about the Philippian church, how were they to love Eodia and Syntyche, these two ladies who were causing great division in the church? How were they to love them? Were they to say, you are in sin, but that's okay, don't worry about it. Well, that's not love. They were still to love them and called them to repentance, so they needed discernment in their love how to love those around them. I had the privilege of serving on a board of a homeless shelter in Montgomery for many years. And let me tell you something about being on a board. It sounds great. It sounds like, yes, I'm a board member. And all you do is work, 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 work. So I was on this board and, uh, and it was a good time. It was a good thing to be on. And I had the privilege of teaching a Bible study and counseling men and women at this homeless shelter. And I learned really quickly that you need discernment and how to love. How do you love someone who is deep in addiction? Do you just give them lots of money? How do you love someone who's legitimately trying to get off their feet? How do you love someone who just doesn't care? We are called to love all. Our neighbor, everyone is our neighbor. And those who are our neighbor, our enemies, we're called to love them too. We need discernment how to love folks. So this is what Paul is praying for. That you would love and you would love well and you'd love lavishly, but you'd also have discernment in your love. Knowing when boundaries need to be kept. Knowing when uh, reaping needs to be allowed to happen in someone's life. When you sow, you reap. And and what happens when we uh, divorce those two things? There are times when we need discernment. Let's look at these two ingredients of Christ's love for us. We look at um, um, knowledge and discernment. As we go to the cross, we think about Christ's love for us. Our Savior had always known the Father's and the Spirit's perfect and intimate love from all of creation. And He perfectly knew those whom He was coming to die for. And how can we say it was discerning? How can we say that it was wise for Him to die for us? That's where we marvel That he would come and and he would count equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. But he would humble himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how our love can be lavished on others. This, This is how our love can flow and overflow and abound all the more and more for folks whom we seem to be unlovely. Because ultimately Christ has loved us. We who are singularly unlovely. Well, these two prayers, one for that our love may abound and, and the other one for holiness. We see the holiness prayer in, in 10b through 11. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We are called to live holy lives. A holy life is a life that is described here that is pure and blameless. This doesn't mean perfect. Now, certainly we are called to perfection, but we may, not, we may never achieve that goal until the other side of the Jordan when, when Christ comes back and we go to be with him. But we are still called to live a holy life, a life that is not tainted by sin. 
Indeed, these two words, pure and blameless, describe a metal that is unmixed with an alloy. There aren't any impurities in it. Um, That just like you can look down at molten lead and see the reflection of the maker, so the the Lord is making us more and more after the image of his son, that when he looks at us, he sees his own character reflected. Uh, To be blameless, the word here is be held up to the sun as for inspection. Have you noticed these fancy new um, this fancy new paper currency we have with, with all these different uh, security features? And one of them is a, is a watermark. And you hold it up to light, and if you can see the watermark, then it is genuine. And that's the image that is used here. That when we are held up to light, the light of the world, who is Christ, that we are held up for inspection and we are found to be pure and blameless. We are called to live holy Lives And when we turn to the Lord, he transforms our heart. He takes those old loves and he, and he transforms them. And we begin to no longer love those things that are unlovely or those objects that aren't as lovely as Christ. We do so only in the strength of the Lord. Being called to holy life means doing what the word says, even when we don't want it to. Even when we don't like what it says, it means following what the word says. Because why? The will of God is your sanctification, we find. It is that we become more and more like Jesus. We do this because we anticipate the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the day when Christ comes again. It may surprise you, but uh, when Christy goes away for a few days, the house isn't very clean. You know, and the longer she's gone, the less clean it becomes, the messier it gets. Now, here's the thing. I know when she's coming back. So in five days, you better believe night four, I'm scrambling. You know, I've got plates everywhere. I've got blankets and pillows all over the place and uh, haven't taken out the trash and there are flies buzzing everywhere. And, and so, uh, so I scramble to get it cleaned up so that when she returns... It's clean. Now, if she were ever to go on a trip in which she were to return at any moment, you can imagine that I would keep the house a little cleaner. I would clean up as I go. Why? Because I didn't know when she was returning. Well, Scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. For all the multi-million dollar uh, bestsellers, prophetic works telling us that we're X number of days away. Um, what's that guy's name? Hagee has a new prediction about when Christ is coming again and another one just passed and he hadn't come. And so here's the thing. Even script, scripture tells us even the son of God does not know of the day of his return. And so neither do we. Now there's signs we can look for and things are gonna get really bad before he comes. But still, Scripture tells us that Christ will come like a thief in the night. And so how awful would it be if we're in a movie theater watching something we ought not to? Or in the middle of some rage in our cars? Or ruminating ruminating over bitterness, over past sins? When we hear the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel? We are called to be holy, pure, and blameless 
because we don't know when, day, when the Lord will come again. Now, that doesn't mean we lose our salvation. That's not what I mean. But to be able to rejoice when Christ comes again. Now, all this comes from the fruit of righteousness. Look, look, at, look at this again. This is really interesting. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Where, where, do, uh, where does fruit get, where do the fruit, where do, when you have a fruit tree, where does the fruit get its nutrients from? From the roots, from the ground. Fruit does not grow itself. Fruit is a result of. The healthy tree. An orange tree makes oranges, an apple tree makes apples. And so a Christian produces fruit of righteousness. Now we have to ask the question where does our fruit of righteousness come? It's from the roots, it's from the ground in which we're planted, it's from our remade hearts, it's from the righteousness we have already received in Christ Jesus. So, we are called to live lives characterized by overflowing love and lives characterized by holiness. We are called to both of these things, but the, the measure to which we succeed in these things only relies upon, is only dependent upon how much we realize we have in Christ. We will only love others as we realize we've been loved. We will only uh, live holy lives if we have received, we've already been declared holy by the Lord. So my question to you this morning is, have you received the Lord's love? Out of love, the Father sent his his Son to die for you. And out of his love, he has declared those who come to him seeking forgiveness and repentance and salvation, he has declared them to be righteous. Have you received those things? Because here's the thing, Christ is coming And we don't know when it's gonna be. And you know what? I pray every Sunday, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. So Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly, that you would fill up the roles of your elect and that you would call all those who are appointed to salvation to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We thank you for the love that you have lavished upon us from all of eternity past and you will continue to lavish upon us for all of eternity to come. So Lord, I pray that in recognition of this love that you would enable us by your spirit to live out lives of holiness even as we yearn for the return of Jesus. It is in his name that we ask it. Amen.